Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director Heather Taylor, a.k.a. the Taylor Sisters. What, what, what? Before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. On today's episode, we'll be talking about grief with Rochelle Bensusan and Michelle Williams of Being Here Human. Their work aims to decrease the harm and isolation that is often associated with being bereaved. We hope our discussion today will challenge and deconstruct some of the common myths and misconceptions about grief, and also give you new language around recognizing and honoring your own grief and the grief of those around you. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. We'll be talking about death and dying on this podcast, so please be advised. Rochelle and Michelle, thank you so much for joining us here today on Brains. Thank you for having us. The first question is, I guess, easy and complex. Just can you please tell us a little bit about yourselves? And um, being here human and why and how you started focusing on grief as part of your work. So I uh, never intended to come to this work uh, at all. My whole young life, um, I only had one dream. It was very, very singular. Um, I was a singer and my dream was to be on Broadway. Went to a program, a musical theater program at NYU in New York City and was really... um, really happy with my life. (laughs) I really, really loved it. And while I was in that world, I met somebody named Diane, who also was a singer and who was the understudy for Christine uh, in Phantom of the Opera. She was a member of the Canadian Opera Company. And she very quickly became one of the central people in my life. And in a very un sanitized version and short version of the story. A couple of years after we met, she was diagnosed with stage four metastatic melanoma in May. And by November of that same year, she had died. I had not ever lost somebody to death before in my life. Um, I had certainly not been a caregiver or primary caregiver for someone who was dying. Um, Hers was the first dead body I had ever seen up close and spent time with. And although I had had a significant loss history of non-death related loss before her, her death became this catalyst or this opening where I was finally allowed to experience all of the grief I hadn't experienced previously. In all the ways that our culture likes to tell the narrative of death, she was a really good one in that she was a really beautiful, young, vibrant, extroverted physically beautiful white person (laughs) who died um, of this tragic illness we call cancer. And so I had a lot of permission to grieve her death when she died. And I didn't have any permission to grieve all of the other parts of my life before her death. And so something in me really unconsciously, I think it's my body in some ways just knew that. And so uh, knew that I needed, I mean, I was devastated, shattered over her death, shattered. And it, also became the grief I had from her death became much larger than her as well. So in the extreme flail, that was my grief after she died for years and years. 
I found myself all over the world. I ended up living in a very small community along the Togolese border in Eastern Ghana for many years. I lived in the Middle East. I worked at a camp for children with uh, life-limiting and life-threatening illnesses in California, just trying to find my way. And really, one of the things about singing is that you need to breathe in order to sing. And the other thing about grief is that every time you breathe, you cry. And so singing very quickly no longer became an option for me. Um, as a way to earn a living, I couldn't do it any longer. And so in the kind of years that followed her death, all I knew, uh, I knew that I was, there wasn't a single thing about me that was the same. So who I was on November 28th, 2005 ceased to exist as of November 29th, 2005. Um, and that remains true that the person that I was before her death doesn't exist any longer. So she died and, and did I, and then it's been just 16 years of figuring this version of life and this version of myself out. And in that flail discovery, <laughs> depending on what spin you want to put on it, I eventually went back to graduate school. I got a master's degree in thanatology, which is the scientific study of death, dying, grief, and loss. And eventually that led into a 15-year career, particularly in the hospice palliative care end-of-life sector in Ontario. Uh, in Canada, and eventually led to me leaving that sector and forming Being Here Human with Michelle. But it feels really important, I guess, in terms of, I mean, it's part of the reason why we formed Being Here Human, but it also still feels true for me that Being Here Human is just an extension of me trying to live and survive beyond her death. I think that it has had a lot of impact on people and both Michelle and I and the business get a lot of praise for how it's impacted folks and how meaningful it is. And I don't in any way mean to reduce or minimize that because I think it matters. I'm very proud of it. And it is also true that for me, it's just one of the ways that I continue to exist beyond the point where she did not because part of, or one of the pieces that has changed and that has remained true is that I can't tolerate being in the world or being in any space where I am asked to not be a bereaved person or where I'm asked in any way to place her and that experience of us, of our love, of her death in the past. I know our culture really loves to always talk about, well, that's in the past and then we move forward. And it can be 16 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. It She's not in the past for me. She lives within me. She is so very much alive in every breath I take. She's alive in my marriage. She is alive in how I parent. She's alive in the work I do. And so for me, I, I, I still, 16 years later, can't tolerate being in any space where that's not welcome. Um, because to say that that isn't welcome is to say that I am not welcome. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Yes. Thank you. Michelle. <laughs> so similarly to Rochelle, I never actually intended to, to do this work. My, my mother died in 2010 at the age of 61 of a rare form of cancer. And, you know, we had maybe 10 months with her from the time of her diagnosis until her death. And so that experience actually you know, she wasn't the first uh, death loss that I'd experienced in my life, but she was the most significant. She was the one person that I had lost in my life who I'd had the strongest attachment to. And the experience of her end of life journey for our family 
was very eye-opening um, for a lot of reasons. We are a BIPOC family. We're a family of mixed ethnicity. And so navigating our healthcare system uh, as a brown person um, at the end of life, my mother being visibly a brown person, um, was really interesting. It was totally incongruent with the narratives that I'd heard other folks tell me about their experiences with their loved ones at the end of life. And the, the you know, the thread that kind of was similar to all of those stories was the fact that those folks were coming from white dominant culture. That amount of support, the kind of care their loved one received, the kind of interactions that they had as the, the caregivers to their loved ones with their healthcare community, all sounded so beautiful. And then our family had this experience that was so devastating and so difficult and so challenging um, that I, I realized that there's something, there's a disconnect here. I don't think that we're alone. I don't think we're the only family that's having this experience. Um, and when my, after my mother died, which I think, and I think this is true, and, and Rochelle sort of alluded to this in her own story, is that like you flail and you have this complete shift in what is important. What's a priority? You know, where is your life going? My mother died. For me, it was like, what am I doing with my life? And I had this total shift and reorientation to my career and where I was going. And it sort of led me to say, okay, like, this isn't where I want to be. But this experience is shaping something for me that I think I want to explore further. And so I chose to go back to school to, to get a master's degree in social work, which I thought would prepare me, but also would like give me some kind of an education to help me better understand the experience that I'd had, the experience that I was still having. Because the idea that my mother was now permanently gone from my life was just incomprehensible to me, right? And so being the person I am, I needed to understand this better. Social work wasn't going to do it. I realized very quickly that this was not going to be the space that was going to teach me anything about end of life, anything about grief and loss, anything even about bereavement, even though the field itself is one where everything you're going to do as a social worker, every interaction you're going to have, every community that you're going to work with, every individual that you're going to support is in some way experiencing loss and as a result, grief. So I realized very quickly that was not going to be the education that I was getting. And I had to seek out my own, essentially my own education around end of life, palliative care, grief and loss and bereavement. And it was when I was going through seeking out those experiences that I met Rochelle. And the thing that I think Rochelle, Rochelle and I connected on immediately, well, at least I know I connected with Rochelle on immediately, was Rochelle was doing a volunteer training of which I was one of the volunteers in that training. And Im I immediately recognized that what she was saying felt true to me, felt really, really true to me. And I'd never heard anyone articulate that experience of, of end of life, of grief and loss in the way that she was articulating it. And it all felt so true to me. And so I sought her out, essentially. I went up to her and I said, hey, <laughs> I want to talk to you. Let's go for coffee. Let's have dinner. Let's, I need to talk to you. And it was through conversations and the development of a friendship that we realized, you know what? We're actually seeing a lot of the same things, 
we are actually having a lot of the same experiences and very quickly realized that not only could this be done better, but that we could actually do it better, that we could actually bring something to that space of grief and loss that other folks weren't bringing, that we could actually do it better and create education and workshops um, and an orientation to grief and loss that was actually missing from the landscape. And so, yeah, and so that's kind of like what brought me here. That's what brought us together. And I'm really grateful for it because like, yeah, like Rochelle, I'm super proud of what we've been able to do in this space. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. Can you explain to us your definition of what grief and mourning is and how we need to shift our thinking about grief? Oftentimes people will speak about grief when they really mean mourning. People will talk about mourning when they're really speaking about grief. And ultimately that's because like there isn't in our culture, in our society, there's not a clear definition for each of these things, nor is there a clear differentiation of what each of them are. And so grief, from being here human's perspective, and our definition of grief is that grief is an involuntary response that happens in our bodies without our consent and without our participation. It is something that impacts us on all levels of our being and our personhood. And we don't have control over the fact that we will be grieving. We don't have any control over or over the ways in which grief will show up in our bodies. That is grief in a bubble. That's the definition, right? It happens without our consent or, or participation. It's in totally, entirely involuntary. We will have a loss. We will attach to something. That attachment will be severed. We will experience loss. And involuntarily, we will experience grief. Mourning, on the other hand, is what we do with that grief, right? So mourning is what we would call our grief gone public. So it is lighting a candle in, in memory of, it's having memorial service. The entire process of everything that you would do with your grief, those sort of public acts that don't need to be witnessed, right? Mm -hmm. For some folks, it's, it's writing about their loved one. For others, it's going and running a marathon in their, in their loved one's memory. Those are acts of mourning. In a larger systemic sense, we've seen this in a grander scale, when in 2020, we had the murder of George Floyd and then the uprisings in the Black communities, where we had the Black Lives Matter movement really come into play and do some public activism and, and, um, and um, protest. And Rochelle and I would also define that as a public act of mourning, an outpouring of grief from Black and brown communities. If we really pay attention to these definitions and we actually acknowledge grief for what it is, which is this entirely involuntary response that human beings have to a severed attachment, then we actually have to shift the way that we orient to grief. As a culture, we have to shift the way that we think about grief. That it isn't something that any one of us who's experiencing loss is choosing to do. It's also not something that any one of us has control over when it happens, how it happens, how long it will last. And for Rochelle and I, we definitely don't put any kind of like time limit on grief. If you've had a loss, and especially if that loss is permanent, then your grief experience in relationship to that permanent loss will also be permanent, will be for the rest of your life, right? And so the way that our culture orients itself to grief as being something that is time-limited, as being something that we as human beings have control over, that whole 
way of thinking of grief, that is what we actually need to reevaluate. As well as the fact that we kind of place, um, we have a culture here in North America and generally in any Western country really, where we kind of have uh, an orientation to grief where we look at it as a mental health issue. And when we put it in that category, we also then inevitably pathologize it. And so this sort of pathology-based orientation that we have to grief where, you know, in the DSM now, we have a definition of prolonged grief as any sort of grief response that is lasting longer than six months. And once you get past that six-month mark, you are actually pathologized. There is something pathological about your grief, which then has a medication associated to it to help to relieve your experience of grief. So it's a really problematic approach to grief. And if we can think about the fact that for the last three years, we've all been in the midst of pandemic, we've all had all kinds of losses associated to this experience, death-related and non-death-related, that at this point, technically speaking, because Rochelle and I would say that as a culture, we're all in a collective state of grief, right? Whether or not anyone would agree with that individually and say, oh, I don't think I'm grieving. We are all, to some extent, grieving some kind of loss that we've experienced in relationship to this pandemic. And according to the DSM, all of us are all still grieving over a year, two years later, we would all be pathologized in some way. And there is something insidious about that that we need to examine as a culture, as a society, when it comes to grief. There's so, oh, there's so many questions so that, many. <laughs> that branch off from there. But I think, you know, one of the things at the beginning, both of you, when you're talking about yourselves and your process of experiencing grief, you talked about kind of feeling like you have permission to grieve something like, oh, it's your mother or it's someone who has this like tragic death, like you're allowed to grieve now. But I know that there are many things you said you would grieve about, but you didn't, weren't able to. I'd love to know more about like, what are those things? And why do we believe we need permission mm -hmm. to grieve? So for me, I lost both my parents very young, but not due to death. I lost them to a combination of mental illness, uh, intergenerational trauma. So there's a lot of uh, violence, a lot of lack of safety, lack of chaos. And so I was parented primarily by my maternal aunt. And I know why I didn't have permission to grieve because my parents were living. <laughs> so um, there was no acknowledgement that I was orphaned. There was no acknowledgement of any kind. I don't know that this was explicitly ever said to me. I can look back and think implicitly. I was somebody who, um, with no real effort of my own, did very well in school academically. Um, so it wasn't because I worked hard at all. It was just something I was born with. And in that, in when I would do well in school, somehow the messaging got in that that was that was the evidence that you yeah. weren't hurting. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I can relate to that. <laughs> I can. So as long as you're doing well in school and you're not acting out, I wasn't you know, behaviorally difficult in those ways. And because I wasn't doing that, then nothing was wrong. And it was very clear that everybody around me was very glad nothing was wrong. <laughs> and so <laughs> that just became a, a cycle of reinforcement. And then it was also very explicitly said to me, if I did ever express anything that, you know, I either needed to be understanding or I needed to understand even, you know, hurt people, hurt people, or they're doing the best they can, like lots of those narratives, but nobody ever sat and said, wow, it must be a really sad thing for you that your parents are such harmful people that you're not allowed to be around. 
So those were really obvious to me. Grief was completely only for uh, death, only if somebody died, not had nothing to do with loss. It had to do with a death. And then even then, one of my closest friends, like from my best friend from kindergarten throughout all of school, her mom actually did die when we were in first grade. And even then it was very clear that, you know, she didn't have permission to actually grieve. There was kind of an overwhelming sense of pity for her. I know from other parents and kind of people making excuses for behavior and stuff like that, because, Oh, but it was always this thing. Like we don't talk about it. We just overindulge or we, you know, like you could sense the pity or you could sense the sympathy even, but it was never something that was addressed or spoken about, or maybe we do something in this way. And so I felt like my own experience of loss always sat next to my best friend whose mother actually had died. And then there was no space for any of it. We equate it to death, even if we do want to investigate that further and see how we treat people who are grieving a death-related loss, we don't do particularly well. As Michelle said, anything lasting beyond six to 12 months, anything is immediately pathologized. We create narratives around it. Even if you look or explore the language that we use in our culture around people who are grieving, like denial, stuck, struggling, it's such a dismissive language, you know, because first of all, it's not accurate (laughs) at all. And second of all, it's just so laden with value judgments for an experience you know nothing about. Like the people who are always creating these narratives are never the people who have lived experience. And so it's so, so thick with judgment And certainly I think the primary myth is that it is something we get over. And so even if you are struggling, maybe a little longer than 12 months, at some point, the blanket expectation is that it is complete, that it has an absolute and concrete end date. And what we know as human beings with lived experience, what we know from all of the research and grief theory is that that just isn't true. It never has been. It's just a story. Uh, It's a great one. It's beautiful. (laughs) It's You know, it's just not how we live. And so then it disenfranchises the grief further because then you're not allowed to have it culturally anyways to acknowledge it. And then certainly if you have it and you're, then it, it's not complete in some time, we're really asking folks to carry it entirely alone and entirely silently. I've had a, a lot of privilege in traveling and being with other cultures in times of grief and times of great loss. And the very definition that Michelle's speaking about in the, this prolonged grief disorder of six or 12 months of any kind of elongated symptoms. There are other cultures in the world that bring meals, every single meal, they bring a meal to the altar of their dead ones, of their families. We think of Day of the Dead, where we have a friend that we come and visit every year. There's so many cultures that would meet the definition for prolonged grief disorder, just based on their rightful cultural rituals that they have. So it's really crazy to think of that. You're just like, that's absurd that all people around the world are mentally ill because they maintain continuing bonds with the things and the people that they've loved and lost. The reason our culture wants us to cut it off is because of capitalism, right? And so it's what we define as productive, what we define as productivity. It has nothing to do with truth or with research. It has to do with uh, economics. Make more money. Um, yeah, and we know this. I mean, I'm not saying anything revolutionary or radical. We just kind of going into the third year of a pandemic where every single which way that we can possibly relate to COVID has said that we prioritize the economy over people, over human beings. We're, we just do. And there's like a resistance to being in that reality. But then when we look at it, it's true. There it is. There it is. Yeah. And then, of course, then that's why we have the narratives about grief that we have in this culture. It just only is entirely rooted 
in our economic system. It's not based in actual truth. It's not based in lived experience. I know for myself, I will speak for myself, it has been incredibly cathartic and liberating and also very lonely at the same time to be a person who refuses that narrative, who just says, I will not, I will not, I will not forget her. I will not leave her in the past. I will not leave her behind. And consequently, I will not do that to myself. I will not leave myself behind for a narrative that never included me to begin with. I had a loss, was really upset, crying, not being able to function and going to the doctor and then going to grief therapy. And it was all based around here are the five stages of grief. And we had to go through those stages of grief. And then it's just done. And then now we're on acceptance. There's a narrative about what grief is and what these stages are that I feel like not only we have that in our heads, but I feel like also that's what medical practitioners have in their heads, what everyone has in their heads, what television shows shows us. Like, how... (laughs) Like, how do we think about this differently? I know that you've talked about education and how we're not being educated on grief, even when people should be educated in grief. So, like, how can we, what are we, what should we do about this? Can you just fix everything? (laughs) That is why you're here, I guess, right? Oh, I can't fix it. I don't have the answer. I I can tell you the facts, which is that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief aren't the five stages of grief. It's not how they were ever intended to be. What we've taken from that came from a book that was published in 1969. It was called On Death and Dying, not On Grief and Grieving. It was called On Death and Dying. And it wasn't research. It wasn't theory. It was a medical observational journal, a diary of sorts that she wrote very bravely um, about her personal experiences with dying patients from the point that the dying patient was given the fact that their diagnosis would no longer be curative, that it was in fact terminal to the point where they died, which what we now call acceptance, this word that has been hijacked actually just meant that the person died. It was all wrapped around the person that actually is about to die. It had nothing to do with the family or the the people that were left behind. Nothing at all. It had to do with from at the point of, and again, she wrote about this, if you read the book in terms of themes, Mm -hmm. right? So not stages, Mm. not everybody has them, just themes. She noticed that when a dying patient was told your diagnosis is terminal, there was a theme of denial. And what she meant by denial was they would seek out secondary opinions to see if there were other trials they could get on to see if there were treatments that they could do. When they moved through that and realized that they were getting the same feedback about the disease progression from multiple practitioners, they moved into a stage of anger. And what she said in anger was that there was a lot of blame, like why me? Why did this happen? Who didn't catch this earlier? Then after that, there was a theme of bargaining. So fine, if I am going to die from this, do I? can I still make it to one more spring? Can I make it to my daughter's wedding? A bargaining of sorts. Following this, there was a theme of deep sadness, which we would call grief, right? Incredible mourning period, incredible sadness over the loss of their own well-being, the loss of their life, their mortality. And finally, what we call acceptance meant the actual acknowledgement that they were dying, that the disease itself was progressing. Oftentimes, this acceptance could simply look like a loss of responsiveness or consciousness in the patient, right? So none of it had to do with grief. None of it had to do with a stage-like model. None of it was researched. This was just a physician who, at the time was doing radical work by even engaging with the dying. Yeah, yeah. Cause this was at a time when medicine was almost entirely curative focused and it was an old boys club. So to have a female physician demanding that the field of medicine change its relationship to those who are dying and to humanize them was radical. And she is a pioneer. She's amazing. 
She also was recorded. She did a recording at the end of her life where she said if she had any idea that what her book, publishing her book and her ideas would have become what it had become, she had deep regret and wished she had never published it because what now has happened, which is what you're speaking to, Heather, is the very population that she spent her life advocating on behalf of, her work became a weapon that was used against them. And so she was devastated by this, just devastated. So they, they don't exist is what I can say. I don't know how to fix it, but I can tell you that they don't exist. I can tell you that it's worth questioning that why are we taking non-clinical, non-evidence-based res- work from 1969 and still using it by, with, by the method that we're doing? We'll always joke on our workshops. I'll say, does, would anybody sign up for a 1969 root canal? <laughs> no, thank you. No. <laughs> anybody sign up for a 1969 colonoscopy? <laughs> If there was a, a, a school, a nursing school, a, a medical school that was caught teaching 1969 clinical skills that were refuted, they would be unlicensed. There's such beautiful research, grief theory, evidence-based practice that has come out in the last 20, 30 years that nobody knows about. Everybody knows about Kubler-Ross and the five stage on a cultural narrative. Nobody's heard of Bill Warden and the four tasks of grief. Nobody's heard about Ken Doka and Terry Martin and intuitive versus instrumental grief styles. No one's heard about Therese Rando and her brilliant work with Stugs. There's so much work out there. And we're like, la, 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 la. (laughs) Just don't want to hear it. Because what that work says, what all of that body of work says, which is what Michelle and I reiterate, is that grief does not complete. Mm -hmm. It does not Mm -hmm. complete. That's what the research shows. It is an adaptive process that we integrate and adapt to for the rest of our lives. And capitalism doesn't have room. It doesn't have space. It has no way of orienting. How do we support community members, workers, family members, if they will be forever altered? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. So there's lots of work to do. But this, having, being here human and having conversations like this, I hope, educate more people to throw away the five stages and that the fact that we need stages and, and look at it differently and leads to my next question of how, how can we prepare for grief if we know that we're going to be losing someone? The reality is, is that you can't, right? Like you can't, because if you, if you actually hold the, the definition that we've given you of grief which is that it's an entirely involuntary response that happens in our bodies that we don't actually know how it will show up, then there's, there is actually no way for us to prepare for that, right? So we can hold the knowledge that someone close to us. So if we're talking about, if we're talking about a death loss, then, you know, we may be able to hold that, you know, for example, when my mother was dying, we knew that her condition was terminal, but the fact of knowing that she was going to die and she was going to die imminently in no way could have prepared any of us for the grief experience or response we were going to have. It's just, it's not possible. And it's not until you are confronted with your grief that you will even begin to know what it looks like for you. Yeah. That makes total sense. Yeah. Like the problem in our culture is that we don't actually hold any space or give any space for the reality that Grief is a very individual experience. It doesn't, as Rochelle said, it doesn't follow any kind of uh, a set number of stages. It doesn't look the same in everyone. But people encounter two things. They encounter other folks' lack of literacy around grief and other folks' discomfort with their outward expression of grief. And then as a result, the one who is grieving will experience 
these losses of people in their social circle. They will actually experience folks moving away from them because those people cannot be in in contact, in, in the same space with their expression of grief. And then additionally, as I said, we don't get to decide how grief is going to show up. There are what Rochelle and I refer to as socially sanctioned expressions of grief. And so what that means is that, you know, we have an idea in our culture about what grief can look like and how much of an outward expression of grief we are willing to tolerate as a society before we say that this is too much, before we actually put a label on it and we name it as being problematic or we pathologize it. The other piece is then there's a socialization that we all have towards grief. I'm someone who's cisgender, I identify as female, I'm socialized female, that if my expression of grief doesn't look like Mm. what it should look like for someone like me, Mm -hmm. then again, you get judged, you get maybe pathologized, you get labeled. If I don't have tears, if my expression of grief doesn't look like what it should look like for someone like me, then I'm cold, I am Mm. turned off, I am emotionally disconnected, maybe I'm in denial. There is a whole narrative that gets applied to you because your expression of grief doesn't look like what is socially sanctioned. And that is extremely problematic for the bereaved person. It's very harmful, as you can imagine. And the result is that that bereaved individual can become terribly, terribly isolated as a result Mm. of no fault of their own, simply because our culture is so illiterate when it comes to what grief can actually look like for every individual. Yeah. Again, like you saying, we have no control over how we grieve. So you have no control that you're not crying and blame be put on you for something that you have zero control over. Right. And also to not question the narrative of who the hell ever said and show me the research that says crying equals exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't also exist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's not just that something's wrong with you. It's like something's wrong with the entire assumption or the entire narrative. And I will say like, well, I completely agree. There's, you can't, there's nothing you can prepare you for it. It is similar to me to parenting, which is like, there's not really anything that can prepare you for labor and delivery. There's not really anything that can prepare you for what it means to become a parent. True. And so it's both. And that is true. And I do think it radically impacts how we experience something given how accurate the information we were going into the experience. But what I know for sure is that because the the description or the story that we have culturally, what we've been told grief is, is so deeply incongruent to what the experience is actually like, it sets us up for additional suffering. So while you can't prepare yourself for it because you have no idea There's a difference between saying you're about to jump into a pile of fluffy clouds versus you're about to jump into a pit of hot coals. Yeah. yeah. Those are just different things. They are. (laughs) Right? And so I do think that the stories we're told and the stories that are allowed to be told in a community sense, in your the circles, your work community, the circles that you travel in, their level of literacy and understanding for what it is you're going through and what it is you may be going through will help soften the landing. 
It can mm-hmm. drastically, it's why Michelle and I don't offer any kind of counseling or therapy. We only offer literacy is because it does matter. It does matter that we all are being told. No one is told when you go into labor, no one goes to prenatal class saying this is going to be a great time. <laughs> no one does that. You go into class and they're like, this is going to be really painful. And here are all the options that may be available to you to help you manage the pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then here's a video and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's going to hurt. <laughs> that looks painful. And so nobody's surprised when it hurts. You still can't really prepare yourself, but it's useful that when you're in it to remind yourself, right, I was told this is going to be painful. Lo and behold, it is. Oh, and here are all these options that I remember being told to me that I could do to help cope with the pain. And that to me is really different than what's happening with grief because we're told it will be six to 12 months, it'll be five stages, and then we'll be great. And we resume life as it always was. And then you go into that experience. It is so wildly untrue. Your own experience is so wildly different (laughs) than what you've been told it is. And then there's no possible way you're set up to then have the belief or the thought process that I'm doing it wrong, or something is wrong with me, or this isn't natural or normal, because you were never given the correct information. And so while I certainly don't have the answer to fix it, I have a fundamental belief that literacy is where we start. How do we help people who are facing grief then? And how do we help ourselves? When we're being told, well, go to the doctor, take some pills, you'll be fine. Or don't talk about it. How do we start to change that for ourselves and for the people that we love or other people who are facing grief? We sell gift certificates. (laughs) Because what Rochelle and I, Say resoundingly, and every time we're asked this question, and we've we've already said it throughout this conversation, is literacy. Totally. That's how you help yourself, and that's how you help others, is to become more literate in this space of grief and loss, to, to better understand what the experience is, the diversity of what the experience can look like, the fact that it's entirely involuntary, mm-hmm. the reasons why we have and experience losses that it doesn't have to be only death related, like is actually just becoming more informed and literate. And the better informed you are and the more literate you are, as Rochelle said earlier, once we understand the narrative, when we have a different narrative of what grief is, it actually will influence our experience of the grief when we're in it. Yeah. Right. And if it could be so bold, I don't mean, I'm just going to say this. It's like the question itself, I understand why you're asking it, but the question itself is faulty because it's how can we help? And it's like, it doesn't need help. Yeah. 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 yeah right. If you're yes, saying yes, yes. it requires help, it means that something is wrong or needs interference. And the point that Michelle and I make is that grief is entirely perfect as it is, mm. albeit painful. Mm-hmm. And so what it actually needs is not your help at all. It needs you to get the bleep out of the way. <laughs> totally. <laughs> actually stop interfering. Yes. Right. So very, I'm going to use a very crass example, but like if you're constipated, right, if you're backed up and then you're looking at, you're like, what am I doing? And you're like throwing all these things in your body and you're eating all those foods and your body's just like, no, I just need water. I just need some fluids <laughs> and some fiber. And if you'd stop doing all these things, like I'm going to, I'm going to set myself right. Right. And so that to me, literacy is the fiber, the fluids, the exercise, the movement of grief, which is like, if you just understand it and get out of your own way, will it be pleasant? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You will adapt. Your body will adapt. Your mind will adapt. Your heart will adapt and you will live. You will survive forever changed, forever altered. 
And you don't even have to like the alteration. You know, there are parts of myself that I really do like, and I'm very grateful for the experience of grief as a young person. And there are other parts of myself I really can't stand. And I really wish were different. And I don't get a say. Again, the the faultiness is an assuming that like we get to better or we get to I like it or we get to this like toxic positivity piece. No, you just will exist. You will live with it if you can just stop interfering. But we can't because we're so programmed, as you guys just illustrated, to be like, what do I do? I need to help. I need to do something. How do I help? How do I help? How do I help? It's like, you don't need to. Like, all warm-blooded social animals, I get really evolutionary and Darwinistic about it. But it's just like, (laughs) what is the number one thing that has allowed us to survive as a species? Adaptation. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Just let yourself. But if we have this narrative that says you go back to who you once were... There's no room to adapt because adaptation requires change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of narratives, (laughs) um, are there any film, TV, books that deal with grief in an accurate way, in your opinion? And if not, what would you like to see represented? Well, there's a book that we always recommend to folks, which is Megan Devine's It's Okay That You're Not Okay. And it's probably one of the first really beautifully written, accurate representations of grief from someone who actually was a therapist in a space where they supported folks who were grieving. And it wasn't until they had their own experience that they realized, holy, this has been, I've been doing this all wrong all the time. (laughs) So that's one that we always, always tell people about. I really love um, Afterlife, the Ricky Gervais series on Netflix. There's a pinch at the end of the first season of a little bit of like this silver lining, toxic, positivity that I really wish they had avoided. I'm like, oh, you had to do it. You just had to do it to get renewed for a second season. Yeah, probably. But mine is the last 15 minutes of that episode. The rest of it, I think, is really, really well done and accurate. Um, and there was a movie a long time ago. Same thing. I mean, I, the ending, you know, they need funding. But the duration of the movie I could get behind um, was a Hillary Swank movie called P.S. I Love You. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And there were just moments in them where, like, it really actually showed the despair like they really did just go there um where you could not only see what they were losing or understanding the grief about what was lost or who died but you actually saw the transition in them the change that it was something that they wouldn't that it wouldn't it didn't mean that they wouldn't live or they wouldn't have other meaningful relationships or meaningful work but that they were actually fundamentally and forever altered and i think what i loved about both of those is that what I took away from it or what I saw that was illustrated really beautifully was this idea of like, I actually do wish they had lived. I really wish it had been different. And I feel like so much of what we're told now is, oh, I hate it so much. I get like so mad about to say it, but like this narrative that says that we have to be grateful for what we went through because it made us who we are today. Yeah. And it is the most dominant narrative we have about grief and of trauma right now in our culture. Yeah. And yep. I hate it because I don't believe for a second that I wouldn't have learned what I needed to learn had she lived. I don't believe I wouldn't have still become a person that I liked and that could do be of service in the world had she not lived. And I don't believe for a second that she died for my own personal growth. I think she was in a body and cells mutated and it killed her. And that was it. I don't think that it was, you know, people say it happens for a reason. I don't believe that. I don't believe anything. I think we are humans and we are, mortal. Our lives are finite. And so we die and then people are left behind. And that to me is actually enough. She died and I lived full stop. 
And none of it needs to have meaning, purpose, a reason. I don't believe it. And so in those two, that movies and that Netflix series, I feel like what they did really well was explore that it's like, no, I, I'll live, I'll continue to live. But like, I really just wish that hadn't happened. I really wish actually that I would have gotten this version of my life where I just get to live till old age with this person. And I think that that's not like on top of, of course, there's no space to grieve. There's not really any space to be nuanced and to be able to, you know, I, for myself, I can, Michelle and I get this often. I get it all the time, which is that like, but you're married, you have three beautiful children, you have being here human, you do such meaningful work, she would be so proud of you, everything happened for a reason. And I just want to like throw punch people because <laughs> it's like my survival or like, do I love my wife? Absolutely. Do I love my kids? Absolutely. I would have had an entirely different life that would have been just as great had they had she not died. And I really wish I had had the shot at that one. Yeah. And so it's like, there's no space for saying like, of course, I'm still grateful for what I have. I'm glad I'm not dead. That goes without <laughs> saying. It doesn't mean that actually it makes up for this other life that I was so deeply invested in that got taken from me. Mm -hmm. There's a couple other shows that I've watched recently that I think do a, a pretty beautiful job of sort of relaying that complicated reality of the grief experience uh, for many folks. And one is Tignataro's Mississippi, because it looks at grief from so many different ways, not just from death, but also from Tig's own experience of their own health and chronic illness journey. And then the other one that I just watched really recently, and if you can just get past um, Amy Schumer and her problematic, um, you know, whatever, this I think was a piece of good work um, and it's Life and Beth. And I thought that was also really beautiful because it is a daughter who had a very complicated relationship with their mother and then losing their mother and then how that impacted. But, but so much more than that as well. It just also explored things like relationship when you're in a relationship that you realize isn't going to be the relationship you thought you were going to have and the grief associated with that. So it was so there's a couple of other shows that I would, I would recommend to folks if you want to see something that actually uh, is bucking the trend of showing something that's a little bit more realistic about grief and loss. I was going to just add, I don't know if you've seen Somebody Somewhere yet. Yes. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so good. Loved and, it. And I think, yeah. but I think it, it deals with not only loss of, of through death, but it also deals with loss because of identity yep. and yep. Yep. where you believe to be and coming home and like changing your profession and feeling lesser than sometimes. And grieving what could have been that never was. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yes. That was oh, beautiful. Yeah. So good. I got chills. Yeah, yeah. I cried and laughed oh, at the same time. Like all the, the way end, through. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't know what to yes, feel. Absolutely. And you know what was interesting about that one as well is that death was part of it, but it wasn't it wasn't central. It actually did explore loss from so many. And the, and the, they, it was so interesting because they didn't even ever really show you even who died, right? We just knew that somebody died, that it was the sister barely even spoken of, but then explored all of the other losses that were surrounding this individual and their family. It was beautiful. Yeah, that's, thank you. That's another great one. I agree 100%. I feel like I really want anyone who's listening who's a filmmaker to stop doing the five stages of grief. You don't know how many times like you hear that too. And then like, oh, how do we represent this in this narrative? And how do we pull this through the stories? So I think I'm, I'm hopeful that anyone who listens to this may start to think differently about 
grief and the representation of grief and also just hopefully to help themselves um, in terms of like understanding more and getting literacy. Mm -hmm. So we'd love to know if there's any other resources um, that you would recommend for people um, as they're starting to learn more about grief and the literacy behind it. I think podcasts are great. Like Megan Devine has a great podcast um, that you can source out if you look her up or her book. It's okay that you're not okay. You'll very quickly find her podcast. Our friend Lisa has a podcast also called Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, which is great. Lisa Kivover. One of my favorite podcasts is a podcast called Dying for Sex. And it's a story of two best friends, one of whom is terminally ill with breast cancer. To me personally, um, I just love hearing firsthand experiences and uh, hearing other people who are willing to tell the truth about their own experiences, because I think we find ourselves in them in that way a lot. And then this is a more relationship one, but if you look at Esther Perel's podcast series, Where Should We Begin? There's a lot of episodes you can pick out from there about couples who have come together following a loss. So either one of them are coming into a relationship as a widow or they've had a collective loss in the family. Those for me are the kind of go-to podcasts that I go to just to hear how other people are figuring it all out. Any last words you'd like to leave us on um, before we <laughs> say goodbye? Take our workshops. Do it. It was amazing. Sarah and I took the training and it's such a great course and it gave us or, you know, still in a process of learning, but giving us language around that. I think that the truth is, is what Rochelle and I know, and, and this is not to be braggadocious in any way, but there is nothing really else out there like what we're offering is what is true. We wish that it was different. That is also true. We wish that we didn't have to be the place where most people find themselves because they can't find anything else, but it is what it is. And so we are always grateful when people find us, but the reality is, is, is that what we offer is very unique. There isn't a lot out there like it. And so I think if folks are searching for literacy around this experience, then yeah, they should they should feel welcome to join us for a workshop anytime. And can you just let the, the listeners know that you offer a scholarship? Yes, we do. We for so for folks who, and this is particularly for folks who come from more marginalized communities, those who face some financial barriers, those who are from BIPOC, uh, LGBTQ, or chronically ill communities or disabled communities. We do offer subsidized spaces where we offer uh, fees on a sliding scale. And then for folks who actually just have no access to financial resources at all, we will always make sure that we create free spaces in our workshops. And that is actually through the generous contributions from our past participants and our, and our social media following who actually provide some financial resources to us that we keep for those sort of spaces for folks. Amazing. So yeah, if anybody feels compelled to donate please do. some funds, please do. Yeah, it's such important work. They can go to our website and find and click on the offerings tab. And that's where they can do that. I was going to say, Rochelle, do you have anything that you'd like to add to finish off? I, think I just wish, I always wish that someone had said this to me in the early days, you know, or the early years, I should say, like days, years after Diane died, which is that nothing is wrong with you. Like really and truly nothing is wrong with you. It really does hurt this badly. And what was lost really did matter. It really does matter as much as it does. And so when you lose something that matters, this is the inevitable, not just normal and okay response, but this is the inevitable, the inevitable outcome and nothing is wrong with you. 
And I really feel that so about myself, first and foremost, and I feel that about all the people we work with. You know, I don't believe that we're all going to be okay. I don't think that's true in the world we live in. I don't think that we all make it, but I definitely, definitely know that the amount of hurt and pain that can come when we are grieving, that it is not in any way evidence to support the fact that something is wrong. Thank you so much. Thank you both for sharing your stories, for, you know, giving some insight into the way that you're thinking about grief and how I think we should start to think about grief and to educate ourselves on it. Um, I know that I will, this is okay. I will be forever changed. So thank you. You're welcome. Sorry. Thank you. That means a lot. I found that like I had a friend die unexpectedly on like a Saturday. And then on Monday, this woman who was my friend's mom and who helped me in high school in a way that like just help my life. And then I had to go to start, I had to go on a Zoom call and start work. And I had a really bad day. And I didn't know how to tell my boss that I was grieved. Like I was so sad. And so when later in the week, when he kind of gave me feedback and I still, even at that point, couldn't feel like, oh, I'm really sorry. I had two people die and then had to join a phone call. (laughs) Like I didn't feel like I had the right to say anything. Yeah, I will say that I don't think you're wrong. Like, I don't want to give the impression that all spaces are safe to do that. You know, like, I I don't want to set you up. It's like, yeah, just claim the legitimacy of your grief all the time. Like, I don't want you to lose your job. Like, bereaved people have to constantly discern and assess, like, can I show up here? Can I show up here? It's why I don't work for anybody else. You know, I don't think you're imagining it. I think the barrier that you've experienced, which is the lack of literacy, the lack of space. That's what you're feeling there. What you're coming up against is not your own lack of courage. It's a very real barrier, which is like, I don't know how this will be received. And I don't know what narratives this person has in their head. And will they then think I'm not capable? Will they then pass me over for a promotion? Like those are real, real things. When I do see someone struggling, like I will never allow in my presence someone to apologize for it. I will never in my not reach out and just say, hey, in the ways that I can, because I think it matters. Even this seems like a weird story, but you'll know when our recent uh, Supreme Court justice was just nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court, she told the story about walking around on the Harvard campus and she was so distraught. And this black woman who she didn't know, who was just crossing her path, looked at her. And all she said as she walked by was she leaned in and she just said, persevere, right? And that moment of somebody, for them, it wasn't necessarily about grief, but it's like the moment where someone just sees you and you don't have to have a pre-existing relationship with them. You don't have to know them, but to just be like, I see you, I think is like incredibly powerful. And so in my life, in your life, in the people we support. It's like, if you can just have those moments to just be like, I'm so sorry you're hurting. I see how devastating this is. And then don't interfere. <laughs> like, not I'm not having this interaction to make the person feel differently. I'm not having the interaction to make them feel better. I'm just having the interaction so that they're witnessed. Or it could be like her where she never even knows who that woman is. She doesn't know if that woman's still living, but she that encounter to her was enough to make her persevere. So now she is the first black Supreme court justice. Right. So I think it's like, I don't have a very large social circle, but it's like the people I have collected over the years are like 
beyond high tested true because they're the people that I know I can, maybe I can't do it to my boss, but I can call afterwards and just be like, holy fucking shit. I'm actually so shaken up by this. And I'm so sad and I think I will be forever and whatever it is. I think you just have to collect those like gems where you can find them. And even in the situation, if you really don't have them, then I, for myself, it's just a commitment that I make for myself to provide them for myself. So whether that's like going through the forest, whether that's making sure I always have a dog, whether that's watching show or something that makes me cry so I can have the feelings. I can't fix this. I can't change the whole world, but I can absolutely not participate in it myself. But it is really fucked up that we work in a system that a boss can't even pick up on that and stop and just be like, we're just going to pause the phone call for a minute and check in. Mm-hmm. Hey, Heather, anything I need to know? How are you doing? In a kind of very like Darwinian way, like I feel like if we were the pets in the zoo who, if we got let out, would have lost all of our survival skills, you know, like we'd be the first to go. <laughs> yes. Because we, we can't even read the people across from us enough to say like, one second, something's off here. Do we need to check in? Yeah. Yeah. That we can't do that is like actually like a, like an instinct that we've lost. Like we have it as animals. So something's wrong that we've lost it and are like next on the meeting. (laughs) Keep with the agenda. Yeah. It's weird. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's just important to remember, like you were having the correct response. It doesn't mean that you did something wrong or something's wrong with you. It just means that you work in a system that's really shitty. Well, that makes you feel better about the thing that I was carrying with me for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope this is useful to people who are listening to just think differently Mm -hmm. and to give themselves permission to think differently and to be differently in the world as they need to be. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Keep in touch. Please do. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. I feel like I've my entire perspective on grief and mourning has changed. And I... I just think that I, like I said, I am forever changed because now I feel a greater capacity to think about grief in a new way and to support other people and what they need. And then sometimes like by supporting them, maybe, you know, not doing anything and just being there, not shying away from other people's grief. Yeah. I think that's a big thing. I like, it's almost like a a veil was lifted from my like perspective on what grief was and what grief is and what mourning is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did reflect on times when I wanted to do something or say something or be somewhere and I, and I didn't feel like I was allowed. And now I, I'm going forward. I'm like, just going to do the thing, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So sometimes I'll like have a memory of somebody who's, who's passed and I, but I won't say it because I don't want to like upset anyone. But I think like the, to talk and to, to keep doing is important. Yeah. And I think it's an honoring of someone. Exactly. And I think also honoring someone when they don't, you know, when it's a hard time for them, like knowing, you know, my my husband's mother passed when he was young. And, and so Mother's Day is hard for him and certain times of year are hard for him. And to just be able to give him space that he needs and to, you know, allow him to just have grief in the way that he needs to have grief in those moments. And like not trying to fix it or make it better, yes. right? I think that's yes. the biggest thing I've taken away from this is like, and even hearing Rochelle say like her partner, Diane, lives on with her, is still living in her and with her forever and ever. And that's never going to go away. And that was like a huge thing to think about it in a different way. Yes. And also that grief is not just tied to people and death. Mm-hmm. That it, that you can grieve about. There's grief about anything and everything that's in your life. There's moments of change and moments of loss around things like your work or ideology. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. there's so many things that you can 
feel grief because it's just how you feel. Exactly. Because it's just part of being. It's not like, I sh- yeah, I shouldn't feel this. I'm like, but you it's are, like feeling, you are feeling it. And I think that's the biggest thing we need to reframe in our world is like, the sh- and I hear it all the time, like, don't shit on yourself. Don't shit on yourself. But but if you're feeling the feeling, then feel the feeling. Yes. Right? And we don't need to explain it away or justify it or we just feel the feeling. And I've definitely experienced, like, I was laid off and it was it was tragic for me at the time. Like, it because mm-hmm. I was identified with my job and so it was huge. Yeah. And if I had different perspective, then it maybe it would have been different. It just would have been different. But, yeah, like, there's so many moments in life where we just need to let let it be. Yeah. And it's like letting it move and pass versus like, I'll do this too. Like, oh, you'll stop the emotion, but mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. there still. So you're just like, let yours building up. Yeah. You're just, you're just packing <laughs> things on top of it. Eventually you're going to explode and that's yeah. not good for your body or the people around you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what I really enjoyed when I first started dating my husband, his family's Vietnamese and they have a day. It's, I think it's usually, I need to confirm with my mother-in-law, but it's usually the the anniversary of of someone passing, they will prepare their favorite meal. So there's like this one day where we'll go to my in-laws and we'll have this feast and it's all of the favorite meals of my mother-in-law's father. And so that is such an awesome tradition that they hold and they're honoring the people that have passed. So that's something that we've talked about as a family. Like, well, what would you, what would you want your meal to be? Like, what do you want us? To, how do you want us to remember you? You know, should we have nachos? Or are we going to have tacos? Like, so it's just I'm pierogies and ramen, please. Okay. In the West, it is so different. And like, of course, we talked about this and capitalism and all the things. But being able to have some insight on how other cultures celebrate death and the, the, the people that they've lost in the physical form, but are still there in their spiritual form, is just really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. We're going to, I guess we'll talk about our awesome things that I, mine is not related to this conversation anyway, but I guess that's okay too. I love space. The first interstellar meteor has been confirmed. So interstellar meaning coming from outside of our solar system. Oh. And so they have discovered what they believe is to the first known interstellar meteor to ever hit Earth. I mean, that they know of. I still think it's like with the technology they have now, this is something they can confirm. Yeah. So it's a space rock that originates from outside our solar system, which is very rare. And so this one is known as the sexy name of CNEOS 2014-0108. Oh, because that's when it landed. (laughs) (laughs) And it crash landed along the northeast coast of Papua New Guinea on January 8th. 2014. So basically, there was a an undergraduate student who basically was doing, you know, research around what's called Umuamua, which is the first known interstellar object in our solar system that was found in 2017. And he realized that there actually was another object that had hit Earth in 2014. And they found it was from an out what's called an unbound orbit. So most other meteors are in a closed orbit that will then come down and hit Earth. But this one came from outside of of the kind of these orbits that normally meteors are found in. And so basically they said it was produced by another star, got kicked out of that star's planetary system, (laughs) and just so happened to make its way to our solar system and collide with Earth. And so it was just confirmed by U.S. Space Command because basically – 
there is exact information isn't always given by NASA to even these scientists because just for confidentiality's sake, I think they keep things. But it was confirmed they reviewed um, analysis of additional data available to the Department of Defense because they basically Department of, of Defense is responsible for military operations in outer space. So this is under their purview, which seems so fascinating. But anyways, they have confirmed that the velocity estimates reported to NASA is accurate and it indicates an interstellar trajectory. I love that the poor little meteor, is it a meteor? That's what it is, right? Got kicked out of another star solar system and then landed on Earth. It's like, you're not going to, you don't, I'm sorry, buddy. <laughs> sorry, buddy. <laughs> I know. And then and then everyone's like, these poor people, like, so basically the, the person who identified it was um, Amir Siraj him and another person he was working on this paper with, they would been saying for years, like since 2019, they've been like, hey, there's this thing, there's this thing, and no one would confirm it for them. And then they finally, they saw a release and they're like, wait, it's been confirmed? This is us. We found this. <laughs> like, it, it's pretty cool. That's cool. It's like interesting. Um, and of course, you'd have seen, I've been seeing like online people joking about Oh, this is when all our problems started. I mean, I don't agree. Our problems started way before mm. 2014. Cons- conspiracies. All the and conspiracies. conspiracies. Some scientists are like, this isn't true. Like, it's yeah, like going to be a lot of conversation. But I just think it's just interesting how sometimes you find things un- in unexpected places. And so SCNEOS 2014-0108, welcome to <laughs> Welcome Earth. to planet Earth. <laughs> <laughs> We're here for you. We're here for you. <laughs> My awesome thing for this recording anyway. A dear friend of mine got a new kidney. <gasps> and yes, she's doing well and it's just the best. And when I got the message that there was a kidney for her, like it's so when you're on the kidney or, or not, I guess on any transplant list, basically you get a call and you go right to the hospital and then like mm-hmm. so she got a call and then like the next day she had a kidney. Like how wild and just like the medical technology or system and like how this works and like you get somebody, you get an organ and then you're like life changes. Like it just, yeah. So I'm just really excited for her and I hope everything continues to go smoothly and that she is able to get back to full capacity and feeling, feeling good. And it's, I know it's been hard during COVID Mm -hmm. being ill. Yeah. So I'm just so, so happy that, she got a kidney. It's so great. It's amazing. And it was and she was released from the hospital on Green Shirt Day, which I didn't realize is transplant day. So you wear a green shirt on the on in March. I can't remember the exact date in honor of transplant recipients and people. So, it was great. I'm so happy for her cuz I know that it was a hard journey to this point. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm I'm really really excited that she has what she needs now yeah. in the form of a kidney. A kidney that works. That's great. Yeah. I guess this is a good time to maybe say if you're interested in being an organ donor, you should make sure that you have that check box checked on whatever form you need to check it for wherever you live so that mm-hmm. you can also help other people. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm an organ donor. I am also an organ donor. And yeah. where I am, it's on your driver's license. Check it out. Do what you can if you can. If you're Yeah, it will help someone. It helped my friend and it's very, very, very good. I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor. Mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. That's my husband. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish. And our graphics was created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-Triple-A-I-N-S Podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com. 
where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Heather Taylor. And I'm your host, Sarah Taylor. Bye! Bye.